I'm Alice Holden and I'm head brewer of Growing Communities Dagenham Farm that's based in East London. From Ackroyd Lowry, I'm Oliver Lowry. And I'm John Ackroyd. And this is Urban Forecast, the show where we talk to the people defining the future of our cities. We discuss their background, what drives them and the insights they've learned along the way. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in how we live, work or play in the cities of the future and what that means for the built environment today. Thanks, Alice. Great to have you on the podcast. Just wanted to invite you along, really, because we're fascinated by the work that you do over embarking, and it ties in with what we're talking about in terms of greening the city and about how we can create more sustainable cities. So I think I'll let you do a little bit of introduction to your background and tell us a bit about your story of how you ended up running the farm embarking. Sure. Yeah, I was farming for about 15 years in various parts of the countryside. And my partner, who's an architect, was living in London. And so one of us had to change where we were based. So I headed to London in 2011 and looked for sort of agricultural jobs, which was obviously there weren't that many. But I was really fortunate in my timing because growing communities who I now work for, we're looking to test out the viability of an urban farm in the peri-urban zone of London. And they just acquired a site and I applied for head grower and got the job. So yeah, from coming from like really beautiful West Wales and the countryside and idyllic life, I'd imagined, I found myself in Dagger next to a sausage factory and um, in a place that looked more like a prison than a farm behind like big gates. And there was a dog unit that came in for security and yeah, it was a big change. And I've now been there for 10 years. And actually, it's been the most interesting and diverse farm I've ever worked on. So yeah, it's been a great. That's why I've been there so long. That's great. Really interesting. So just tell us a little bit more about the farm itself, maybe, and how it that, that process of from being a what was it, a vacant piece of land before? So, just... yeah, in the reason I suppose it's based where it is that there is more available land for things that aren't just housing. We're in the peri-urban zone. We're in zone five of London. So there's quite a lot of ex-industrial land and there's lots of green spaces. But when I arrived, we, we took on the lease from Barking and Dagenham Council and it had previously been the council plant nursery. So it had been raising plants for the borough. And I think that each borough of London used to have this kind of nursery site with lots of greenhouses and infrastructure and polytunnels. And they historically used to raise plants for the borough in these, these borough in-house nurseries for like cemeteries and schools and various municipal places. However, like lots of other things, the costs came prohibitive in terms of the labour and it became cheaper to import plants from places like Holland. So a lot of these sites were, yeah, became redundant and some of them were developed, some of them were destroyed and some of them became available to rent. So we were really lucky. I couldn't believe it as a farmer to find a site full of greenhouses and very expensive infrastructure ready to go. In, in urban London. So they're really valuable places because to put in all of that is, is quite prohibitively expensive for most small scale farmers. So there's probably some other ones lying around in other boroughs not being used or partially being used or whatever. 
Yes, there are. There's one at Organic Lee, which is what's the council next door to us. Yeah, they've got a nursery site, which is now a sustainable farm and it does, it Wolfen predominantly Forest, does training. Is it Wolfen Forest? Maybe? Yeah, Wolfen Forest, that's right. And there's a few dotted around the place. There are some that are still in London undisused. Yeah, some have been taken down. And then there's one even in West Ham Park, but that not a borough nursery. It was belonged to the Royal Parks, but it's got amazing glass houses. But I think that it's going to be demolished and there's going to be... Yeah, I saw that site. It was a redevelopment site was sent to us. Yeah. <laughs> it breaks my heart. In, but somebody is. <laughs> yeah, seeing all that infrastructure taken away breaks my heart. But I do think also the need for housing, you have to weigh it up in, in London. So, yeah, but then also we all need to eat and we all need sustainable, more local supply. But, yeah, I think it's... What is it? Zone two. It's probably or zone three. It's probably a more prime site for housing. So I'm interested in the kind of week when we're running out of tomatoes in our shelves and other sort of vegetables and things. Bringing growing closer to home in the city, it seems even more relevant than ever. So I just wondered, do you think it's realistic that kind of urban farms are going to provide any? serious contribution towards food needs of the cities or is it is it a sort of nice little experiment but it's very interesting and valid but it hasn't got any kind of scalability i was just interested in could it be two percent five percent ten percent twenty percent of london cities? i don't know yeah yeah so this is what growing communities the organization who i worked for were trying to test out they did some modeling of this and they worked out that if the peri-urban zone was like ringed with lots of these kind of market garden type in intensive but sustainable production farms you could produce about 17 percent of a city's needs but that would obviously mean massively scaling up in terms of the numbers of these types of places i think like with lots of things it's for me i the more i've learned about it the more i think it's about uh, having a sort of tapestry of solution it doesn't make sense to grow everything in these kind of sites because some things require much more land and so it makes sense to source them from further afield but I think in general it makes sense growing things as close to urban populations as possible so it's specific to the type of crop and the climate you're in but as part of the solution yes absolutely I feel that we we produce about five tons of food a year it's not a huge amount but it also provides a space for education and connection for urban populations, which I think is also part of our, part of the like viability and the part of what makes sense of us being here, but we can do both at the same time. And so I grow things that give more than one harvest. So I don't grow things like potatoes and onions and things that take longer to grow and take up more land. But I grow intensive salads and tomatoes, things like that give a high yield of a small area. And there's also a case to be made for cycling nutrients from our waste in the city, which also makes sense of our location because so much, so many humans in one space create so much organic matter. And this organic matter has potential to be used, used to rebuild soils and be cycled and turned back into food. So. I think there's lots of reasons that do make sense. I think uh, it's really interesting. You've got the big sewage treatment plant, haven't you, around the corner in, in Bath, Nagenham, yeah. and it, just see, it does seem mad. I was reading this book about the history of London and before sewers were introduced, basically people used to put their waste in their basements 
and they had a hole and then it would be t- and then people would come around with carts and take that waste out put it in carts and ship it out to the countryside where it's used as fertilizer so this happened for hundreds of years and then once we got the water closet with flushing toilets that didn't work anymore because there's so much water you just got washed down and then you eventually got the great stink because all this sewage was they hadn't built the victorian sewers at that point all the water rushed through and made, and then the Thames became a massive sewer, whereas before most of the solid waste was put back as manure on the farmland. So it's quite interesting. And then they built the sewers. But at the moment, we're still getting this problem with sewage being pumped out into rivers and everything else. But if there was a way of actually harnessing that, do you think there's some opportunity there eventually? Because I know there's, I don't know, legislative and all sorts of risks, but using human waste and the waste of a giant city like London to create. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of soils are deficient in phosphorus and we lose lots of phosphorus in our human waste. So yeah, water treatment plants being joined up with farms makes sense. And also to some degree, we do it on a very small scale in Dagenham in, in that we use green waste compost, which it comes from Veolia, which is a waste facility just down the road from us, which again, makes sense of our location. And we get delivered tons and tons of green waste compost, 10% of which I think is from food waste bins. But again, it's I feel like we're going to have to do a big retrofit over the city to help join up some of the systems that we haven't thought about the design of in terms of connecting these resources up. Our agriculture has come to rely on man-made nitrogen fertilizer and mined phosphorus and rather than organic matter that cycles. With those things becoming increasingly expensive and increasingly finite, we need to start using the stuff that we've already got that currently causes pollution and that is more local to where we live. But we need the systems in order to do that safely. It's interesting you're embarking in Dagenham and saying that because actually one of the issues of more housing sites coming forward is that waste sites are one of the places that people are building on. So actually, Barking Dagenham's got some of the largest remaining waste sites. And actually, it's tricky, where do you put them? Wilson Forest don't really want them. Barking Dagenham, nobody really wants these waste sites, but they sit outside of, on the perimeter of London. And actually, it wouldn't be impossible to imagine that if you had your peri-urban farming, you'd be in the same areas as the waste. So you do, you naturally will end up with those two activities happening near one another just because of the kind of the realities of, of land value so there is then an opportunity to work work them together there's also the circular economy element of it for me which is that we call it waste now but actually it could be fertilizer which we're currently using a petrochemical base most fertilizer is extremely carbon expensive and phys- now increasingly physically expensive since the war and everything else so that, that it uses a lot of energy to create if i'm correct the sort of intensive farming that we generally rely on Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about 70% of what we put in our bins can be composted. So that's all anything that basically was once living. So all our plant waste, lots of paper waste can be composted. If you put it in landfill, it becomes anaerobic and it releases methane, which is a it's far more potent a gas in terms of causing climate change than carbon. That makes no sense. But if you provide the right conditions for composting it aerobically, it doesn't produce methane and instead it produces something that helps hold carbon and can also 
cycle new life. So it's just a sort of madness that, yeah, that we're not doing more of that. In Newham, where we live, we don't have a food waste collection. So people don't have the option. So it's not people's fault a lot of the time to put it onto the individuals. Like it's about access to these resources to make us more able to live sustainable lives. I think that coming on to that, so I guess for me, I'm thinking also from Architect Developer Council point of view, very much getting the system set up in any new development in terms of being able to compost, recycle, reuse and get those materials. I guess at a policy level, there's like pushing governments to think more innovatively about the kind of sewage system and how that can be used. That's quite a long goal, but it's a, it's quite interesting. But it's like a city scale thing and it gets yeah. sold at a borough level and that's difficult because borough to borough, there's no connected thinking, and that's part of the problem. The GLA is the party that should be really trying to think. We're building new super sewer that's costing 15 billion or whatever it is. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. waste collection is always done by the borough, and I don't yeah, know, yeah, there's yeah. a huge amount of thought about how you might optimize. Well, everyone sees it as a problem at the moment, yeah. and it is, but it's actually how can we, if we're going to move to a more sustainable model of city, how can we think about that in a different way? And could that then increase the productivity of urban farms and things, as well as then? Reducing the amount of waste and carbon production and methane production, mm -hmm. as well as also then maybe creating jobs and apprenticeships for people to understand some of the skills we might need to be more sustainable, like what you're doing, growing. If there was a tax or higher taxes on like polluters, that would incentivize designing in less pollution and cycling. And ca tax carbon properly is one we've come back to a few times on. It's yeah. difficult, but if yeah. you actually did do that, then you'd be more encouraged, for example, to buy organic produce because mm -hmm. the moment the way it's made cheap is by fertilizer that's yeah. using lots of energy. Yeah, and one, I suppose one incentive at the moment that's changing things for farmers to use more sustainable methods is the costs now, it, I suppose it hasn't been, there hasn't been much incentive to change the system because it's been cheap, relatively cheap to be able to buy nitrogen fertilizer. However, the cost has just gone above a thousand pounds a ton for the first time. So I think increasingly these things will get expensive and actually sustainable methods will become more alluring because they'll be, it will be about the money. Yeah, the costs. And that makes people do things. Yeah, but if you, yeah. Head of the game. And I think that there would be various councils, but well, there already are others that would be interested. In terms of building an urban farm, is there like a size, a minimum size or space that's needed? I see lots of cool schemes for vertical farms and all sorts of things, but in reality, from a farmer's perspective, what would what's a sort of minimum viable site and what would be a good site if, as part of yeah. a parcel or whatever on a out of London or whatever, or the out of the city. I'm not anti roof farms and vertical farms and stuff. I think the green walls make a lot of sense. However, I am an organic farmer, and part of that means that I have to, part of my certification means I have to grow in soil. And I'm really interested in this like symbiotic relationships between microorganisms and soil and us and our health and the wider environmental health. So part of the scale would. For me, it would be very important to have enough land to be growing in soil rather than in substrate. But you can produce a lot of food off, I think our farm is actually, the bed area is only about half an acre. So yeah, and there's farms that are smaller than that, producing a lot of like a third of an acre. And I think the potential to demonstrate things in the city also gives it value for taking up urban land. I think maybe a third of an acre. 
third of an acre is a minimum size. That's interesting. interesting. And does it require a lot of electricity? Do you heat or anything, or do you just use? Yeah, part of the reason the nursery went out of business for the council was that all the greenhouses were heated with gas. We don't rely on any heating. We just work with what grows seasonally. The infrastructure we have of tunnels and greenhouses gives us a season extension of about a month in spring and a month in the autumn, probably a bit more than that, actually. So, no, we just adapt. We use what plants grow well in our climate at certain times of the year, thus for instance, with tomatoes, I, I, we harvest them from about July through to November because that is the period when they will live in this climate. Yeah, how, we're not. I'm not fighting the climate we have, or I'm trying to fight it as little as possible. It's becoming more tricky because there's more infrequent, there's more frequent weather events, like extreme weather events. So, I'm finding that is something I'm having to navigate more and more. We had fires in Dagenham last year where 15 houses burnt down just two miles from the farm and it was 40 degrees. Yeah, and in the tunnels I was harvesting lettuces and it was just (laughs) pretty unbelievable. But yeah, yeah, as I say, it's about trying to use the climate. Can I just ask, is 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 the farm, would the farm be viable at the rent that you pay without the council's support or is it a sort of council-led initiative? No, we, we're we sort of separate from the council, they're just our landlord. However, this year for the first time they have shown a lot more in collaborating with us, which is really exciting. I think they're realising the value that we can add in terms of some of the policies that they're having to meet in terms of climate and yeah, food targets they have. They've just employed a food officer and they're directly in having talks with us and we've just collaborated about doing school visits for the borough which is really fantastic just with a few local schools but that is something that I'm really excited about because again it it makes sense of where we are and if we could say get all the primary schools of the borough to come into our farm that would be quite impactful. Yeah, quite. I think to the leader there, Darren Rodwell, he's one of the most inspiring local leaders, I think. And I think I can imagine them getting quite excited about working more with you guys because it's, it ticks a lot of boxes for them, as you say. Yeah, yeah. it makes us feel more secure as well because yeah. with our, we're on a lease. And that's another thing in terms of your question about what makes sense in terms of urban farms at scale. I think also the sites needs to have security of tenure if you're building up soil and soil health it takes a long time so a lot of the time sites are temporary and for me that wouldn't be viable to have to move yeah meanwhile uses is not it's not great for meanwhile you want what minimum 10 years 20 years i don't know yeah i think 10 years minimum and then hopefully after that point you'll have shown your value and you, yeah, they won't want to get rid of you, <laughs> especially if you're working with councils. Yeah, no, I think it's amazing the work you guys are doing. That's why it's so fascinating having you on. I, I guess one other thing I, I, in my brain, which was just everywhere I read is about the biodiversity crisis and the challenges of modern farming techniques, killing that off in the countryside. And actually, we had someone in the other day talking about how the city is becoming more biodiverse than the countryside almost because there's more opportunities, which is counterintuitive. It's not monocultural in a city because it's unconstrained, whereas what tends to happen is in the countryside, you constrain your different cultures because you're trying to grow just wheat. And so actually then you get an absence of ecosystem around that one crop, whereas cities 
they're just the bits that people aren't tending to just to, anything can grow yeah uh, um, how does this but how does urban farming and farming somewhere between right because it's you've got a range of different things that you're trying to grow but you're using some things like polytunnels which obviously don't lend themselves to supporting an ecosystem yeah I, yeah, so that's also something that we try and demonstrate on our farm and that's quite powerful to communicate back to people. You can produce food coexisting and actually working with the nature that's side by side with you. We have very few pest problems because we have lots of habitat on the farm. There's wild bits next to the cropping bits, which create habitat for predators. They, I think we've been conditioned to see certain plants as unsightly, things like brambles and nettles, actually things that we have a lot of wild bits of the city. But these are some of our strongest habitats for things that we love, things like butterflies and bees. Um, so they're really important spaces. You have to think if you were an animal or an insect, where would you live? And yeah, as you say, a lot of urban gar gardens are more diverse than the countryside now but yeah the type of farming that I do is very diverse in terms of what we grow often I will mix up plant crops for in our mixed salads because different plants put they attract different microorganisms and di diversity under the ground creates a more healthy system so it's the opposite of a sort of monocultural lab type growing operation it's where you're sort of working with the pests and the predators next door to you and it works we don't have to reinvent something I don't use any herbicides we don't use any man-made fertilizers we don't use any pesticides yeah That's amazing amazing way forward and so who's who the market who do you sell to generally is it yeah. local or is it are you have you got a supply chain that will buy your food yeah, so growing communities, they realised that the problem for small-scale sustainable farmers was routes to market. A lot of the time, I think we try and come up with these like technological solutions to things, but they realised something quite obvious and basic in that they needed a trade model that helped enable the small-scale farmers to connect to the urban populations. So in in real terms, that is a box scheme and a farmer's market. And they've also just set up something called the Better Food Shed, which is a wholesale, but a not-for-profit wholesale enterprise that's based in Barking. So farmers from outside the city, it's easy logistically for them to drop their produce there. And then the Better Food Shed distributes it to lots of, I think, 14 different box schemes around London. So they help the farmers with their routes to market. But the trade model in real terms is the sort of essential bit. It's a harder sell than like vertical farming and roof gardens and stuff. It sounds quite mundane, but it's actually what enables us all to exist and we get a fair price for our produce. That's because correct. it's not for profit yeah do you sell to restaurants and things like that yes so i sell to about five different restaurants and then most of my produce goes to a box scheme in hackney just because logistically that's where better food shed it works to take Is that at hackney city farm what's that Sorry. is that at hackney city farm no it's actually in stoke newington it's called growing communities box and that's something i would say to people if you want to like support the biodiversity crisis in the uk 
which is about to be highlighted by David Attenborough's programme, The Wild Isles. I think he was saying that we've lost 60% of our flying insects in the last 20 years. And one way you can support the nature that we all love is by supporting small-scale organic farms. And one way you can do that in a city is to find your nearest organic box scheme. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just that they don't spray their fields, they don't kill off all the pests. Yeah. So is there a website that they should be looking at or anything for that, Alice? Yeah, you can look at growing communities, but also the better food traders have a list of different box schemes. And you can Google your nearest box scheme. Sometimes there won't be a really local one, but if there is, it's really helpful to the smaller farmers that you support them for some of the bigger box schemes. But if there isn't, the Riverfords, again, they're organic and that's great. And then, yeah, some of the smaller box schemes try and source from like less far afield. So that's also an important factor if you're thinking about fuel and transportation. And what about also for those us who are starting to grow vegetables and things at home, I think you produced a very good book as well. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's called Do Grow and it's just trying to encourage and enable people to have a go at growing some of their own food at home. It's not, you don't have to know everything about soil science. It's not very difficult, but it's hopefully just a way into starting in a small space and there's different it depends on the space you have obviously but even from window boxes to a small garden there's plenty of options great book i've read it recommend it we'll put a link in when we put this stuff on yeah. that's fascinating i really appreciate your time today i think there's some great opportunities there for developers and councils and things to have a bit more of a kind of ambitious strategy in terms of integrating growing in the city and even commercialising waste into something that's... And higher than that, I think that's, it's got to be set out in a policy way, joined up thinking between what we're considering to be waste and what we're considering to be production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's stuff that... The previous person that we, was on the podcast was Dr Nick Bowes, who's at the Centre for London. So I think it's, I'll make sure that he listens to this and then he can advocate for policies, because that's the level that he works at, is advocating for policies across the city that can solve like problems exactly like this so yeah it was such, such a fascinating session talking to you thank you so much Alice yeah that's thank you so much speak to you soon Alice and really appreciate it. maybe we need a round table with Nick Bowes and yeah, Alice yeah. and a few of other people kind of leading thoughts from different positions I think it'd be really interesting yeah definitely yeah more joined up thinking um, yeah more connecting between different parties that's what we need <laughs> so nice to talk to you today amen thank you very much <laughs> bye, bye. If you enjoyed the show, then please subscribe and give us a review, ideally a five-star one. And uh, if you want to know more, please go to acroidlowry.com or follow us on Twitter at acroidlowry and Instagram with the same. This podcast supports LandAid, the property industry charity that brings together the sector to deliver life-changing projects for young people who really need it. Visit www.landaid.org to find out how you can help end youth homelessness.